Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we'll be wrapping our series on worldviews. We've already spent four weeks on worldviews. We've looked at Christian theism, at naturalism, at postmodernism, and at Islamic theism. Tonight we'll be looking at nihilism, and in fact, nihilism should have gone after naturalism in the sequence, but due to our teachers, it's a little bit out of sequence. But nihilism is a philosophy that it continues on from naturalism. So you might could say that uh, every naturalist is not a nihilist, but every nihilist is a naturalist. Um, so naturalism is the idea that what you see is what you get, or that uh, you can only believe in things that you can see, or things that occur naturally in the world and that can be measured with science, you could say. Uh, nihilism is the belief that nothing matters, and it's almost a philosophy or a worldview that extends, I think, logically from a worldview like naturalism. Of course, we'll get into more of that later tonight. And for our teacher tonight, we have Eric Gentry, who is a preacher at Highland Church of Christ, an excellent teacher, and I look very much forward to his lesson tonight on nihilism. So let's go to Eric right now. All right, let's jump in. Uh, firstly, I'll, I'll clarify this in our class too. Kyle and David say nihilism. I say nihilism is the way I was taught. Well, yeah, no. And I, I think if I tried to go with nihilism, I would end up saying, or if I went try to go with nihilism, I would end up saying nihilism the whole time. So I'm going to stick with how I, I'm probably wrong, but I'm just going to stick with it. I think annihilation is how I think of it. So, all right, you're just going to have to forgive me if I'm wrong. Let's start with some discussion questions here. Okay, uh, so who's who's a med student? I'm trying to keep everybody straight. All right. So, okay, first one, med student. So, so somebody tell me why you're going to medical school. Okay, well, there's like to be a doctor, but why? Why do you want to be a doctor? Why, you know, why are you going through this process to be a doctor? I've got a good answer to this because I got into medical school. Yeah, right. So somebody's asked you this before. To help people. I know that's cliche. Okay. Yeah. So why do you want to help people? Because they have intrinsic value in their identity in Christ. Okay. All right. There you go. Yeah, you're not a nihilist. <laughs> nihilist, whatever. Okay, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, gotcha. So that, that's good. So uh, let's see. You're a dentist, right? Yes. Okay, why are you, why are you a dentist? Make that money. <laughs> Make that money, that's right. <laughs> Make those Benjamins. Yeah. Um, honestly, because baseball didn't work out, and my uncle said, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Mm. through a different medium, especially through something that people have a lot of bad experiences with, and, yeah. um, have a lot of pain and anxiety with, and so just to turn it turn it on its head and just end up inviting Christ into the room and sure. inviting Christ into their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, good answers there. So, okay, Who, who's, uh, who's married? All right, let's see, married hands. Got married hands in here. All right, all right. So why? Okay, y'all are married, right? Okay, why don't why don't you cheat on him? Because I made a commitment. Okay. Because my future relationship with him is more important than any current relationship with anybody else could be. Yeah, yeah. Why is uh, why is it worth keeping your commitment? I mean, I sound bad, like, 
because it's like a mutual benefit from me keeping my commitment. Like we both benefit by being happier, by being more secure, by having a future that we like saw and decided to have together. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. We go, uh, so why did you decide to have that future with him? Because he's fun. Because he's fun. <laughs> 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 All right, that's good. Uh, we can work with that. We can work with that. All right. All right, those are good. Yeah, that's great answers. Great answers. All right, um, how about this? Uh, how'd you decide who to vote for? Not asking who you voted for or if you voted, but if you were going to vote or did in the last election, how'd you make that decision? Yeah, absolutely. So why is abortion the most important thing to you? Uh, just because, like, it's a, a life. Sure, sure. So why do you feel that way, that it's a life? Because uh, I have one. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right, okay. So why would that, I mean, we, we could push this further and say, you know, why does that unborn child have value? Mm-hmm. Right, okay, so we, we talk about that. It's not a session on abortion, which we could do another time, but right. Okay, so uh, what about this question? Why is it heroic, or why does it seem heroic, when a soldier loses his or her life in battle? You know, we have uh, Memorial Day. We remember fallen soldiers. Why do, why do we do that? Why is that worthwhile? Or why do we view those people as heroic? We got an answer on that? They sacrificed for a greater cause or purpose, I guess. What was the cause? Well, at the risk, I won't, I won't be cynical with it. Um, yeah, the, uh, they would be so much better to answer this question. <laughs> um, <coughs> to increase the potential liberty of our great nation, I guess. So, like, not our protect, oil reserves. Protect this border. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, okay. Uh, is anybody an organ donor? Somebody signed up to be an organ donor in here? Yeah? Yeah? Who, one of you raise your hand? Yeah, okay. Okay. Why are you an organ donor? So that I have no use for them when I'm dead. Okay. Help other people. Okay. So why would it be like worth helping other people with your organs? Like, why would you do that? You're dead. You don't care. They have value. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I've got more questions here, but we're gonna. I don't want to spend the whole time doing that. What I, what I hope you see there is um, probably if we really were to examine it beneath every decision we make, um, even like the everyday decisions that we don't even think about, like not cheating on our spouse that day. <clears throat> decisions are just natural. You know, we're just gonna do those things. <clears throat> there are probably reasons that are are deep and and one of those is just like my husband's fun right but probably you know deeper beneath that is we made this commitment and that commitment is based on some principle maybe that's you know for my wife and i that principle is you know jesus the church is the bride of christ 
Jesus is not going to betray his church, his bride. He wouldn't uh, be unfaithful to her, so I'm not going to be unfaithful to Lindsay. Okay. It's the same with helping people. Why do I want to help people? Well, because they have value. Okay, why do people have value? Because they are made in the image of God or um, Christ bestows on them value by his death and resurrection. So if you were to, all the decisions that we make daily, really if you were to, to go layer by layer and just kind of ask, attempt to ask, you know, more penetrating questions maybe than I was asking, and just get down to the, the bottom layer, peel back all those layers and get down to the core. What you have there is what you've talked about the last couple of weeks is a worldview. Like the reason you make the decisions you make is because you feel a certain way about the world. You see the world through a certain pair of glasses. So <clears throat> I'm not going to, I think this is your last week in the worldview thing, but the reason it's worth bringing this up again is because what nihilism is is kind of the absence of, of a worldview in some ways, or at least a, a guiding worldview that has any value. <clears throat> and so your worldviews, how you see the world, right? I think part of this, you know, if we go back to that political conversation, I think this partly descri describes or is instructive on why politics is so divisive today because I think our politics are, are diverging, or at least maybe in the past at one time, they were simply our politics, but increasingly they are our identity. You know, like, um, and so that's why, you know, you would vote for somebody who you had serious issue with because they were in the right party example i don't think everybody makes maybe the, the step you do where it's like okay there are critical issues here where is this person on that critical issue rather than just they go in and they check the box and i'm going to vote this party line it's because that's their identity it's who defines it and so i think you know that's not our conversation for tonight too but you might think about that maybe the reason politics is becoming so much more divisive than it has been and, I, and politics has always been divisive but that probably it's increasingly a worldview and not just your political leaning probably it's the way you see the world. I'm a Republican, so I have to interpret the world this way. I'm a Democrat, so I have to interpret the world this way. So uh, y'all been asking these questions about what's a worldview? <clears throat> uh, they're the five central worldview questions. David put this together, and I'm just copying, and you've probably seen this already. Have y'all seen this already? Did y'all see this? Yeah. <clears throat> so typically, you want to think about these five things when it comes to a worldview. The origin, where, where does reality and the self come from? Meaning, what is the purpose of our existence? Identity, who am I? Morality, what's right and what's wrong. Destiny, what will happen to me after my death. <clears throat> uh, everybody answers these questions, but I think, like David's pointed out here in this slide, that unexamined life often leads us to answer them in implausible, self-contradictory, unfulfilling ways. So if we want our worldview to be meaningful, we want to know, is it true? Is it good? And I think a, a, a really great question that David raises, is it beautiful? Is it compelling? Is it a compelling worldview? Because <clears throat> if it's not, it won't be sustainable. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight with nihilism. All right, any questions as we get going? All right. So what nihilism, if you were going to, you know, really briefly, what it is is extreme skepticism. So, you know, a lot of people would say, like, I'm a skeptic. You're a nihilist. Okay, a nihilist is is extreme skepticism, basically of all reality, certainly of all truth, and potentially of all reality. And, and that's gonna create some sort of challenges for the nihilists. There's elements, uh, the reason I think it's worth talking about it is because uh, there's elements of nihilism in post-modernity or, um, 
or maybe what I would say is post-modernity leads naturally to nihilism. And um, so that's why some of the com common tenets of post-modernity aren't really sustainable. But here's a, here's a definition for you. Nihilism is more a feeling than a philosophy. Nihilism is, is a denial of any philosophy or worldview, a denial of the possibility of knowledge, a denial that anything is valuable. In nihilism, no statement has validity, nothing has meaning, everything is just there. Everything is just there. So uh, we'll start with this comic. Yeah, this guy says, I'm worried it might be a nihilist. His friend says, if you're worried about becoming a nihilist, you're not a nihilist, because a nihilist would be worried. He says, that makes sense. I'm not worried anymore. Welcome to nihilism. Yeah, okay. uh, who actually feels this way? You know, Why are we even talking about it? Well, like I was saying a second ago, I think that nihilism is, is really just a, you know, I was going to say a step up from postmodernity. Maybe it's a step down. Okay, maybe, you know, we're descending into something not great here, obviously. But it's a short step away from postmodernity. And the thing about postmodernity, postmodernity, it's marked by a lot of things, but maybe key is that everybody's truth is their own truth. Whatever's true to you is true. And, um, for instance, we're going to come back to this. Um, did y'all follow this story last week? about the 26-year-old guy who was killed by that isolated tribe. Did you see this? Did y'all see this guy? This is the most, did you, have you seen this? Story? It's one of the most fascinating stories from an ethical standpoint and a religious standpoint. We're gonna come back. The brief version is this 26-year-old this adventurer um, approached a, uh, an island that's inhabited by a, a tribe that's largely untouched by the modern world and has a, in fact, that their status is protected by the Indian government. It's on an island, and the Indian government enforces a buffer zone to keep people away from that tribe. And, and he went there uh, claiming to want to spread the gospel, and he was shot to death by arrows, and they can't figure out how to get his body right now. Fascinating story. And I was talking to a, a Christian PhD student about the story. an article, and in the article, the, uh, the, the Christian who wrote the article, a Christian PhD st student, was talking about uh, the problem was that um, what this young man should have been identifying or um, what should have been guiding his life was pluralism rather than the idea of Christianity as the one way. Right? That like always might lead to salvation. And I think by like, you know, pluralism is, is different than nihilism, but pluralism is certainly postmodern everybody's religious bents, their religious ideas, their spiritual, you know, I'm spiritual, not religious. All of that can be valuable and can lead you to um, the right eternal home. Okay, maybe so. That would be great. And I pray that God makes that happen. Uh, that's, that's not like the biblical uh, instruction that we get. Okay. You know, the biblical word is kind of like, hey, there, there's one way for sure. God might make other ways, but there's one way for sure. That way is Jesus. Okay, so and that's the thing about post-modernity is that everybody's truth is their own truth. And uh, I was reminded of that when I saw this uh, Diet Coke commercial. Have you all seen this? Oh, no. There we go. We'll start it over. It's pretty easy.
I mean, it's, it's not really worth So firstly, n nobody who's just free to do whatever they want chooses Diet Coke, right? You know, like, oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. You know, it does not, it is, yeah. I think you can grow to like Diet Coke. I think a lot of people do, but, um, okay, but you hear what she's saying. Like, whatever you want to do, you just do you because you can't. All right, that's the, that's the principle of post-modernity. And what we think is that that leads to a world where everybody's really extremely happy and fulfilled. That's the best possible world because everybody does what they want and there's no guiding principle, you know, there's no uh, forces that they adhere to that are beyond them. They just do what they want to do. And that's, so that's, oh, sorry, I want to move on there. <laughs> Watch it again. And that's kind of what the, the nihilist thinks at the beginning. This, this graphic was clearly made by a nihilist because the nihilist is saying here that the stereotype is that you think nothing in life matters. So that's the nihilist position. There's, there's no significance to anything in this life. And, in re, and the nihilist says, in reality, that's awesome because nothing in life matters. You do what you want to do. Um, but in reality, I think it's more despairing than that. I think it's actually the first. So this next, we're going to watch a whole play. I think it's 30 seconds long. It's by Samuel Beckett. It's called Breath. Has anybody ever seen this before? All right. Breath. You're gonna have to. You might have to turn it up because you need to listen to it and just award-winning play. Samuel Beckett wrote "Waiting for Godot." Has anybody ever read "Waiting for Godot"? We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna watch this. You gotta you gotta listen. You ready? Waiting for Godot. Um, you say, you say, have you ever read? Yeah, and she's like, all right, here we go. This is it. You got you gotta listen and watch. So what do you hear and what do you see is what we'll ask. Oh, sorry, I didn't press it again. There we go. My bad. <laughs> Missed it. So what'd you hear? Yeah, breath in and breath out, right? In, inhalation, exhalation. And in between, there was what? What'd you see? Trash. Yeah. And there, particularly, there's some like hospital trash, medical trash. Uh, like I think there's like a, I don't know what you lay the baby in when the baby's born, but then there's definitely a hospital gurney that's laid on its side. And so his, this is like a famous award-winning play. It opens with this labored inhalation. The lights come up on trash. The lights begin to dim. There's an exhalation. Lights go out. That's the whole play. I don't know if they've ever like, 
stage this play and who comes to see a 30-second play? Like opens for another play? Um, that's the whole play. And what he's saying is, Samuel Beckett, he's a famous nihilist, he's saying that all of life is that. It's trash. There's no meaning to it. You, you breathe in, you come out of the womb, you, you breathe in, life's trash, there's no meaning, there's no value, the lights go dim, you breathe out, you're done. That's pretty much it. His famous, probably more famous play is Waiting for Go, and it's about two guys, and uh, we had to read this in English class. You're fortunate if you didn't have to, but they're waiting around for another guy, Godot. A lot of people think he's talking about God. And the whole play is about them waiting for him to show up, and the play ends, and he never shows up. <laughs> right? He never shows up. And, it, and it's his commentary. It's the nihilist view of a religious life. You're waiting on somebody who's never going to come around because we, we know life is just trash. There's nothing beyond this life. The pangs of, it speaks to the pangs of human emptiness of a life that's without value, without purpose, without meaning. That's what one guy says about breath. All right, so if you want to be a nihilist, here's your checklist. Here's what you got to do. I want to be a nihilist. How do I get there? Well, that question disqualifies you because you can't really want or desire anything because you'd have to have, there'd have to be a reason. You want to be faithful to your husband. You want to help people. There'd have to be a reason there. So if you, the moment you're desiring something, you're, you're, it's like proving you're not actually a true nihilist. Nihilism is really sustainable. But some people think it is, but I don't think so. What's a naturalist? You have to be a naturalist first, sorry. Um, what's a naturalist? I think Kyle talked about that. Basically, it's matters all there is, and it's eternal. So what you see is all there is. It's all you're going to get. And the cosmos operate with a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. What that means is that human beings are just conscious, complex machines, and whose our personality is just determined by chemical, physical properties, reactions, events that preceded us, and that's about it. Because it's a closed system. Okay, so myself, who I am, is determined by those forces. I can act according to my wants and desires. I can appear to be free but it's appearance only. Uh, I'm going to try to make a little bit more sense of that. Any questions so far? Has anybody ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Probably not on your reading list. Yeah, it's not that great. Uh, they also made some movies. Anybody see the movies, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, during the course, it's, it's kind of like this space thing, and there's this kind of centers around this nihilist idea. During the course of history, these hyper-intelligent mice build a computer that's the size of a city, and they name the computer, anybody remember the name? Is it on, it's on there, Deep Thought? Oh, it's right there, oh my goodness, Deep Thought. The name of Deep Thought. The computer has one job, and the, the job's to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. And it spends 7.5 million years on the calculation, and in the end it announces that the answer is in fact 42. That's the answer, okay. And so, they don't know what to do with this. You don't know, how is this the meaning of life, 42? And so, another even bigger computer has to be built to figure out what the actual question was. And it, this computer was so big that it was called the Earth. It was so large, it was frequently mistaken for a planet, especially by the strange ape-like beings who roamed its surface, totally unaware that they were simply part of a gigantic computer program. And this is very odd, because without that fairly simple and obvious piece of knowledge, nothing that has ever happened on Earth could possibly make the slightest bit of sense to them. Ultimately, the question is revealed to be, uh, what is six times nine? 
somebody actually got this tattooed. I had to censor out the rest of the image. Um, but uh, six times nine is what? Yeah, not 42. And so what it comes down to is like the meaning of life is this number. The question of life is, is bad math. You know, the, the answer doesn't even, so that's kind of, and maybe that helps you understand nihilism, maybe not. If, every, if everyone's true, truth is true, then really there is no truth. Okay, so that's how it's a step from nihilism. If you can say six times nine is 42 and be right, then there's not truth. And so what that does is it makes life pretty meaningless. All right. The meaningless, meaninglessness of life was something Nietzsche talked about. You remember Nietzsche probably. Regarding life, the wisest men of all ages have judged it alike. It is worthless. It's trash. Samuel Beckett. All right. So let's talk about these questions when it comes to nihilism. And I think nihilism will maybe, you'll begin to understand it maybe a little bit better. Hopefully it's not like more compelling as I go. Hopefully less so. All right, to the question of how do we get here? How does life begin? What's our origin? The nihilist would say, it doesn't matter. It can't be known. Matter has always been there, we guess, but who cares? Um, so if you go back to naturalism, you, you've got matter is all there is. It's eternal, so God's not part of the equation. And then two, the cosmos operates within a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. Well, the problem is that somebody stuck inside a closed system, like the ape-like creatures on the giant computer called planet Earth, right, can't possibly know anything outside of the system. And, and as we surmise about planets, the beginning of our planet had to come, even, you know, even a scientist who has no commitment to creationism would have to believe it began outside of our planet. Right? And so if, if we're truly in a, a closed system, we can't possibly know that how the closed system started. Okay, kind of a nihilist position. So is that true? Well, probably not. I think David's probably talked about this with y'all, maybe Kyle as well. The best evidence from science and philosophy demonstrates that the universe began to exist at a point in the distant past. Is that a good answer? I mean, what do you think? Is that good? It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, probably not. Probably not a good answer. Is it beautiful? No, it's not super beautiful. <coughs> I'm reminded of this in Psalm 89:11. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that's in it. So as you kind of compare the Christian worldview to the, the nihilist worldview, the Christian thinks that like, okay, part of the reason that life has meaning is that the life you're living was created by God, okay? was founded by God. The space you're living that life within was founded by God as well. Questions, comments on that? Um... So Nietzsche's not the first guy to feel like life doesn't have meaning. So is he might well, never mind. That's Job in that picture. And uh, this is from Job 7.16. Job says, I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. Leave me alone. My days have no meaning. So does anybody know why Job's saying that? Does anybody remember Job's story? 
So Job's a really religious guy, really faithful guy, and um, we could do a study in Job, which would be a good study. But God allows the Satan to come and take his family and cause him great harm and sickness destroys his whole family, all his property. And um, so Job has this nihilistic moment and or maybe like 37 chapters of nihilism. And the nihilist stance is that life is meaningless and that sense does show up here in Job and elsewhere, but Job feels this way because basically his worldview that God protects good people has just been blown up. And so probably some of you have been in that scenario too. Um, I don't know, like maybe your baseball career. Like, I'm a good dude. I'm working hard at baseball. Why isn't this going to work out? Okay. I don't know. I'm just shooting from the hip there. But like when, when disappointment happens, maybe you lose somebody close to you you love, then you kind of like what you do is you reevaluate your worldview. And you ask yourself, well, is what I believe right? And for Job, it was not right anymore. God did not protect the good people just because they were good, okay, from all harm. Now, maybe he protected Job from much other harm, but he wouldn't, certainly wouldn't protect him from all harm. So Job can either re- rewrite that worldview, he can amend it to make it slightly different, or he can just drop all, drop it, right? And so what Job's doing here is he's just dropping it. It's not worth trying to rewrite that worldview. He just drops it. So like we do that, we do that same thing. The people we know do that same thing. I mean, many, many people who lose their faith lose it due to some kind of catastrophe. I mean, it's, there are people that like reason their way out of faith. Uh, but I think far more often it's just they've got a picture of God that's built up in their mind. That bubble gets popped and they're gone. They're done. <clears throat> so Job sounds a lot like Nietzsche. We just looked at, you know, uh, my days have no meaning. Nietzsche, uh, what's a man's life? It's worthless. Okay. It's also in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So it shows up in the Bible for sure. <clears throat> what I'd say is though, biblical characters and authors wrestle with the seeming meaninglessness at times. And if you haven't felt like like life is meaningless before, like you will. <laughs> You're gonna come to that point. There's gonna be something that happens. And so I, I wanna, you know, like extend my sympathy to Job and to the author of Ecclesiastes in these moments. And not to say that these are definitive of what the children of God should believe about their life, right? I think we just, what you're seeing in these authors is those moments where you, you really do feel like life sucks and there's no meaning to it. So even though those biblical characters wrestle with it, the majority of the Bible speaks to this world that's full of meaning and it's given meaning by its creator. However, the nihilists who've used the world as a closed system of cause and effect attributes meaning to only to events that precede the current event. All right, so let me try to make sense of this. So my wife's Lindsay, beautiful, lovely. Uh, <clears throat> so we met um, at a school in Texas, Abilene Christian University. And I think that, like, I, I love her because she loves the Lord. We have so much in common. I picked her. 
not that I had a lot of other choices and she picked me with many choices. She, had, she certainly had many others. Okay, so like we chose each other. Our, our marriage, since we chose each other, has like value to us and meaning. Uh, we went through like hard things together um, that kind of like solidified our relationship. So all those things give our relationship meaning. However, the nihilists would just say, who views the world as a closed system, well, I married Lindsay because I went to ACU. I went to ACU because I grew up in Churches of Christ. ACU is a Church of Christ school. I grew up in Texas, and the reason I grew up in, or I went to ACU because I was in Texas, and I grew up in Texas because my dad had a job there. And so that led me to ACU where I married her. And so our, our marriage has no union. It's the, just this result of a long series of cause and effect. And you could go back much further, you know, like, my parents or my great great grandparents immigrated here on a steamship or something, and they moved here and here. And okay, so there's no meaning to it. It's just it just circumstance, just one event after another leads to what we're enjoying today. <clears throat> so, you know, what is it? Think about it. That makes our lives significant. Why do our lives have meaning? Th think about this question: Do Christians believe in a closed system? Well, no. Okay, but what's the evidence that we don't believe in a closed system? Okay, and I'm not talking about like the biblical evidence. We can come back to that. Just the evidence in your life that you don't believe in a closed system. Can you think of something you do that's an indicator that you don't think the system's closed? Pray. Yeah, pray. Um, I, I've used this analogy before. Uh, one of my mentors talks about life as a card game. And... Um, so we're, we're all, God is the dealer of the game, and, but he also deals himself into the game. And um, so God can deal us cards all the time, and sometimes we get cards that we don't like. And uh, we can pray, though, and God can choose to deal us a different card. That's kind of the analogy he uses. And so if you think life is a closed system, you don't pray because there's, there's no one outside of the system that's able to intervene within the system if you think life's a closed system. So the nihilist has no hope of anything beyond cause and effect. Uh, so I was, do, I was reading this really interesting study about um, in France, apparently like, I don't know what the numbers are, even med students would probably know, but like 9% of, of American children have ADHD, something like that. And in France, 0.5% do or something like that. Or maybe are medicated for ADHD and in France 0.5%. Because in France, they have this approach that they just change the kid's environment. They think it's entirely environmental. So they'll switch them in schools, put them in classes where there's you know, not a bunch of kids and stuff. And, and it's like working in France. So that was what the article was saying. In some ways, you could say like that's kind of the nihilist approach. You can, you can change the environment around people and try to get them to do different things. So it's not totally destructive, right? There, there's kind of advantages to seeing the world that way. But, there, but there's no kind of higher purpose or meaning behind any of it. You just change context for people. So meaning, that's the problem. There is none. Is that true? Probably not. You know, how do we explain the meaning that we derive from experiences in life, teaching? Is it an illusion? Are we fooling ourselves? Is it good? No, probably not. It fails to answer the question, so it can't be a good answer. Is it beautiful? Hardly. More like hopelessly disappointing. There's no meaning in this uh, this is a quote from Sire about the nihilists. Human beings are conscious machines without the ability to affect their own destiny or anything significant. Therefore, human beings as valuable beings are dead. So if, if it's all just cause and effect, we're screwed.
All right, what about our identity? So that's Charles Darwin there. He said that this horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind or woman's mind, which is developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the conviction of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? So what's he saying? Like, okay. Um, you know, like, okay, if, if life is a closed system, if humanity is only here because we evolved from, you know, uh, apes, as he's talking about here, and this is in class on evolution, but what he's saying is, is if that's the extent of our being in this world, of our coming to intelligence or consciousness, if, if, that's, if that's kind of it, then how do we know that like we're at the trustworthy point, that we've actually found knowledge, that our minds can actually be believed? Or is there some like other distant point at which we will actually be like, oh yeah, like now we, now I can trust you. Like how do we know we're not just like still super ape-like? Basically, he says, what we need for our certainty, um, well, I'll, I'll read this. If our sense of identity doesn't come from outside the closed system, we can only derive from within, from ourselves. But if we are only the current result of this endless string of cause and effect, how can we trust our own determination of our identity? So it's not just what we know, but what we know about ourselves. We can easily be wrong because there's no standard to judge our assessment by. We're just one step up from monkeys, as Darwin puts it. What we need for a certainty of our existence is some rational spirit, this is Sire talking who wrote the book on this, outside of both ourselves and nature from which our rationality could der derive. So this is kind of the picture. You want to see what that would look like? Uh, naturalism places human beings in a box. But for us to have any confidence that our knowledge about ourselves inside the box is true, what we really need is somebody who stands outside the box that says, you are this. This is what you are. Uh, what believers call that is revelation. We need that to be revealed to us. Uh, because we can't transcend the box. We're in the box. That makes sense. So dark and despairing. Okay, that's my artwork, by the way. Uh, okay, I'll tell you a story. Uh, uh, I I get to do this Bible study in Shelby County Correction Center. I think I talked about this last time I was here on Wednesday mornings. And we we started a new class. The class goes 14 weeks, and then we do a new group of guys. And they were introducing themselves, and uh, so I just asked them to tell me their name and the most important thing about them. And they started like over here, and he's like, you know, I'm I'm Bob, and I'm a dad, and that's the most important thing about me. And um, you know, interestingly, nobody talked about their crime, as being the most significant thing about them. Which is a lesson for another time that we're all like more than the worst thing we've ever done. Yeah, that doesn't define us. So none of them are going to say that that defines them. And they go around the circle, and they get about like four guys in, and one of the guys says, uh, you know, I'm Jake, and I'm a child of God. And then every other guy after that said that, because they all like that. And I was like, that's the best answer. And it was just a really fascinating moment, because, you, you know, you have here are these guys in this closed system, and what they really long for is somebody outside of that system who can call them something other than what they're being called within the system. Because what they're being called in the system is is hopelessly despairing, you know. They're number five, six, eight, three, 
right okay that's who they are in there and so to to you know like that's that's a good kind of like counter to the nihilist message is that what we all ultimately long for in our close system is somebody outside of it who declares us their child or worthy uh if any given person is the result of impersonal forces so cause and effect that person has no way of knowing whether what he or she knows is illusion or truth so is that is that does that remind anybody of like a medical condition? If you can't distinguish between reality and truth? Like schizophrenia, right? Uh, when you begin to doubt reality itself, that's what it's called, schizophrenia. And in some ways, like schizophrenia is a really perfect example of like of the extreme of nihilism. And I, I'm not downplaying that there's something medical and chemical going on there. But I mean, think about it, you know, when a person no longer knows in the common sense ways of knowing, okay, the, those deep worldviews that are intrinsic to you that you make all your decisions by, when all that departs from them, then suddenly what they are unable to do is distinguish between real and fiction. Okay, when you when you doubt the existence of of reality, right, um, of anything, you know, how do you decide what's really there? And that's that's ultimately the position that all nihilists would be in if they if they truly examine their beliefs. Few sane people can actually sustain the view of nihilism. And the proof is this is a this is a joke that Robert Farrar Capon says. He says the skeptic or the nihilist is never for real. There he stands, cocktail in hand, left arm draped lingoriously on one end of the mantelpiece, telling you that he can't be sure of anything, not even his own existence. I'll give you my secret method of demolishing universal skepticism in four words. Whisper to him, your fly is open. And if he thinks knowledge is so all-fired and possible, why does he always look? Right, okay. I thought that was good. Oh, that was really good. Okay, identity. If we're even real, which we can never know, then we're machines. We're not persons with self-determination. Well, is that true? There's truth that our lives are determined in part by preceding events. Like, absolutely. I met Lindsay because I was in Texas, for sure. You know, if, I guess I could have gone to Arkansas to school, but why would I have left Texas to go to <laughs> Searcy? You know, right? Um, is that good? Well, the elimination of free will seems like too convenient almost. Has anybody seen the movie Hell or High Water about the guys that rob a bank? That's so good. I'd highly recommend it. There may be some questionable content in there. But I can recommend things in here like when kids are in the room. But, um, you may need to fast forward a scene or two. It's about these guys that rob a bank. And I, and I think that's like if you eliminate, if everything's a series of cause and effect, what you, you know, like any decision you make, you could just say, like, it was determined for me. It was out of my hands, so I had to rob this bank. I can't be held accountable for robbing the bank. Is it beautiful? I don't think so. This is what uh, God says about our identity. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Okay. We're almost at the end here. This is what nihilism has to say about morality. You can't, you can't, there's no moral standard. Because if, if we're in this box, again... That's the naturalist. Matter's all we see. There's nothing outside of matter. Well, what that means is that we're, we're, in a, we're in an ethically relative box because we need a measure imposed on us from outside of that box. We need a moral plumb line 
And if everybody's ethical choices, that they're, if they're free to determine those ethical choices with no consequences or no moral plumb line guiding them, then we just have chaos. Kind of like what we have when this like missionary goes to this island, right? You know, you, you have this, this tribe that shoots him with arrows and I've got all kinds of problems with what this guy did. I don't, I don't think you should have gone to the island without, you know, organization with the church, blessing of the church, training. He exposed them to deadly viruses, potentially. There's like all these questions that should have been worked through. Like he wasn't the guy to go, probably. Okay. But, um, you know, you think about like if that was, if you just had different tribes doing whatever they wanted all the time, it would just be chaos. So we need some kind of guiding moral laws. There are varying standards of morality from one group or culture or tribe to another, obviously, although there seems to be some overarching standards. Good when one can point to a value but not a standard, that's insufficient. So if you should say, if you can say nobody should kill anybody, but you can't say why human lives are worth protecting or worth helping for the doctors, okay, then that then that value is actually uh, insufficient. It doesn't work. There has to be a reason why. If, if you're going into medicine because like you passed the test and got in, probably won't last long. You can always be a minister though. <laughs> uh, is it beautiful? I don't think so. Oh, let's go back. Uh, but whoever looks intently, this is James one twenty five, into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it. They'll be blessed in what they do. All right, we're nearing the end here. Franz Kafka was another writer. Uh, he wrote Metamorphosis. Anybody read that? Huh? It's about this guy who falls asleep. Anybody know what he wakes up as? A cockroach. That's kind of the whole story. <laughs> and um, he like gets on his back at one point, like cockroaches do, and he's like, "Crap, you know, like, what do I do now? I've got these little little arms. I'm gonna do much." <laughs> kind of the story. So, yeah, he's. A, it was not a great book, you know. Um, he was a nihilist, and he tells he in in one thing he writes, he tells this story about this watchman on a wall, and he's kind of describing the nihilist conundrum. He says, I ran past the first watchman. I ran past the watchman who's supposed to be keeping guard. He says, I was horrified. I ran back again and I said to the watchman, I ran through here while you were looking the other way. And the watchman gazed ahead of him and said nothing. I suppose, he said, I really oughtn't to have done that. And the watchman still said nothing. Does your silence indicate permission to pass? Okay, and, and what he's saying is, in this universe where God is dead, so where we don't have identity coming from on high, where we don't have a morality that's coming from on high, we, we are not guilty at any time of violating some moral law. We're only guilty of guilt. We're only guilty of feeling bad. And that sounds maybe good for that nihilist at the first who's like, nothing matters, life's super fun. But what you would find is you, you end up feeling bad you end up feeling guilty when you do things, okay? But if you don't know why it was bad to do those things, if you don't know what standard that guilt comes from, okay, then you can't actually have a way of rectifying it. You're just going to feel crappy all the time. 
And if you were guilty of a sin, there could be atonement. Right? If you had broken a law, there could be mercy. There could be forgiveness for the criminal. But if one's only guilty of guilt, there's no way of solving that just personal problem. You're just going to feel bad. I'm sorry about that. And so that's why, you know, that's, that's just another way in which I think that, you know, kind of the nihilism worldview leads you back, actually, to something that is more grounded, that is more, you know, this term has, is like laden with, with heavy imagery, but we might say legalistic, right? That, that is more at least, that there are more boundaries, there's more guidance, because it's with those boundaries, when you cross those boundaries, that you know what to do to come back within, inside. Like, you, you know what grace is capable of. Okay, because of the standard. If there wasn't a standard, grace wouldn't mean anything, and you wouldn't desire grace. All right, you would just desire like somebody who can make you feel better. All right, and lastly is destiny. The nihilist would just say your destiny is whatever comes next, whatever happens when you walk out of this room. Is that true? Yeah, destiny will be next eventually. Is that good? I don't know if that's going to motivate you a lot. You know. Doesn't motivate me a lot. Is it beautiful? No. We declare God's wisdom, wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. All right. So that's nihilism. Nihilism. Nihilists. Uh, that's all I've got. I can try to answer questions for you. I'm not an expert in nihilism. But if you've got any, I can. All right, I want to thank Eric Gentry for coming and teaching us on a very difficult topic tonight. He did a great job. I've been excited with how this Worldview series has turned out. I think it's been very good. And it will also be nice and a welcome change, I think, to start talking about the Old Testament, going through more of a sort of a narrative, uh, more traditional sort of Bible study. We're going to enter into Genesis next week. I think I'll be the one teaching on that. Um, man, Genesis, what a book. Um, we've actually taught it in the past in two sections. We may do that, but I think we're actually going to do it in one. Uh, but either way, Genesis is just a tremendous book. And as the Bible goes, certainly one of the more weighty. And you think about the things that are in Genesis, everything from creation uh, through the patriarchs, and so many stories and so many uh, beautiful glimpses of the life of Jesus that is to come, um, and also just the promise that God made to the Israelites and the promise that he continued on uh, through today. And so I look forward to, to Genesis for sure together next week. I um, want to thank you for tuning in to the MDDDS podcast. I uh, really do appreciate that. Our listens have continued to increase. So I hope there's people out there that are seeking for truth and are finding it in a podcast like this. Again, we aren't experts. Uh, we're doing our best to be faithful to, to God and his word. Uh, I hope that God blesses you this week. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you next time. Thanks again. Bye-bye.